0: Good afternoon. It's Friday the 26th of August 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me via video link, we've got Patrick Henningson, Vanessa Bailey, Ian Davis and Mark Anderson. So it's going to be a busy uh, news programme. So uh, let's get straight on with energy. Uh, and of course, Offgem off this morning announced uh, the raise of the energy price cap, uh, which takes the April 2022 figure of £1,971 per year for the average household. Uh, up to 3350 uh, pounds per year for the average household uh, from october and then uh, the forecasts are well they're actually pretty similar between the various organizations but this particular forecast suggesting that the january price cap will go up to 5405 and then 7263 in april uh, 6485 in july and 6006 in october so they're suggesting it'll start to come back towards the uh, latter half of next year, but not by very much. Uh, And of course, these are only average uh, prices, uh, our average costs for average households. So if uh, anybody needs to look after somebody at home, for example, that has health conditions that requires extra equipment, uh, that's gonna be uh, much more expensive. Now, I wonder where did this this forecast come from? What was this organization here? uh, Oxalone uh, and uh, well, they have been uh, widely published across the mainstream press. They uh, consider themselves to be uh, energy uh, sort of consultants and so on. Uh, let's have a look at what Offgem themselves were saying this morning. Then the price cap tracks wholesale energy prices and limits supplier profit. The current maximum supplier profit allowance is 1.9%. Uh, wholesale prices for this winter have risen 360% since last December alone. Uh, this is driven by global demand and an aggressive economic act by the Russian state, they lied. Uh, And they continue, Russia has slowly and deliberately turned off the gas supplies to Europe, causing harm to our households, businesses, and our economy. But we can't force suppliers to sell energy below cost or more will fail, and not only cost consumers more, but causes massive disruption, worry, and stress at the worst possible time, they said. Uh, And then finally, they said, the response will need to match the scale of the problem uh, we have before us, uh, and government, industry, consumers, and off-gen will need to work together to address the worst impacts of the crisis. Uh, and they produced this handy little infographic or to show uh, the various breakdown of the various aspects of what uh, becomes the price cap uh, between uh, you know whole, the actual wholesale price of the fuel itself, uh, network costs, operating costs, uh, smart costs, uh, and some headroom. Um, so, uh, there you go. That is the situation at the moment. It is getting uh, more and more horrendous by the second. Just before we ask, why is this happening? Um, Patrick, maybe we could just bring you on at this point and ask uh, what your thoughts are about this continuing claim from the regulator that uh, this is all Russia's fault.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, it, it's pretty surprising to see they're still kind of uh, using this talking point. Um, and scapegoating Russia for the spike uh, in energy prices. I mean, Mike, uh, I remember just about one year ago uh, to the day, or well, at least the first week of September, the UK column was raising the alarm. We we broke down this uh, problem, which was a spike uh, in energy and power and gas, uh, pointing out the uh, fatal flaws in the wholesale markets, what's driving this. And back then, I've correct me if I'm wrong, my memory is foggy, but i remember that we identified two uh main culprits uh, to this one of them was uh uh quantitative easing and covid inflation um, also uh power companies were complaining about being short staffed if you remember uh companies and substations were down tools there were brownouts because of a lack of staff because of quarantining and then also green energy policies net zero policies uh that have also interfered with the energy markets. The energy markets are hugely flawed, this sort of post Enron free-floating wholesale speculators dream, uh, which is the energy markets. This is the fundamental problem. The The system itself is broken, um, so there's no uh, government solutions that are being proposed. Um, so between green energy, between COVID and all sorts of COVID-related problems, and now with sanctions on Russia they have caused uh, Uh, problems and disruptions in the supply of gas and power, uh, because of embargoing one of the world's largest energy producers, Russia, this is why you have this perfect storm right now. And for them to be scapegoating Russia uh, or scapegoating Putin in this war is just laughable uh, in the extreme.
0: Yeah. So let's, uh, let's move on then and have a look at what comes next. Uh, Because, uh, well, I'm going to suggest that smart meters are going to get quite a boost uh, from this particular situation. Uh, And where are we heading with smart meters? Many people over the last number of years have been focusing on the health, the potential health impacts of smart meters, and pretty much not really paying attention to what these things actually do. We are heading towards 30-minute billing. Uh, And this is very much about behavior change, uh, because Patrick there talking about uh, net zero policy. This is about behaviour change and about net zero policy. And true to form, just a quick glance around the headlines this morning. Uh, here's the express. Energy build smart meter users could save hundreds a year through new scheme. Uh, we've got uh, evening standard. How can technology help people combat the rising cost of living? Um, this is uh, the Manchester Evening News. Uh, what a smart meter is and how we can get one installed because you need one now if you want to deal with your uh, energy prices. Um, And uh, well, this is energy live news smart meter data set for five-fold growth over the next four years. So uh, behavior change because with 30-minute billing, obviously people will be targeting the times of the day when the uh, cost of energy is cheaper uh, and so they'll uh, change their behavior appropriately. They'll use less energy or they'll use energy at different times. Uh, But Ian, let me bring you onto the program here because this last one smart meter data set for five fold growth over the next four years. We just have this massive increase of data collection and data gathering uh, and surveillance on how people are using uh, or behaving in their lives. Um, It's pretty clear where this is heading.
2: In, to control our behavior through monitoring things such as our energy usage and which is all part i would suggest of sustainable development um and you know also it should also be noted that it's a wild west in terms of in terms of data management uh, if we look at the way that for example nhsx managed the um proposed covid app which and which actually turned out to be a failure before they had to go with a a private provider the the data safeguards that were put in place for, for that data were, were virtually non-existent. And we're seeing the same across with, with all the data losses that are happening, obviously with the social media companies and now with the energy providers as well. What we're, what we're looking at is a, a new global market. I mean, the, the term has been used a few times that data is the new oil that is that's not a bad that's not a bad analogy because controlling the data which ultimately you know the, the zenith of that would be the issuance of central bank digital currency controlling the data will enable us to be controlled it is very much about behavior modification and behavior control and centralized control as well
0: uh, indeed. So let's just remind ourselves what Mark Carney uh, said a couple of years ago. Um, we will not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. Uh, I'm going to suggest that uh, whether this uh, these price rises are, are as a result of policy, whether you believe that or not, which I absolutely would argue that the price rises we're seeing are, are as a direct result of policy, uh, it's clear that uh, the advantage will be taken to, not, to uh, pursue this net zero policy. And uh, of course, this is, again, a policy which is uh, destroying people's lives. Uh, Now, uh, speaking of net zero and so on, let's bring Mark onto the program. Mark, you published an article on the UK column a couple of days ago uh, entitled uh, 19 US States Fed Up With BlackRock's Brazen efforts to function as a private government. Uh, And you highlighted uh, this letter. Uh, Let's just bring it on screen here Uh, and uh, We'll just blow this up. And it says that based on the facts currently available to us, BlackRock appears to use the hard-earned money of our state citizens to circumvent the best possible return on investment as well as their vote. BlackRock's best, uh, sorry, past public co- uh, commitments include that it has used citizen, citizens' assets to pressure companies to comply with international agreements such as the Paris Agreement uh, and force the phase, phase out of fossil fuels, increase energy prices, drive infla- inflation and weaken the national security of the United States. That, uh, Mark, is quite an incredible letter.
3: Yes, it is. And it goes on to admonish Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. Of course, he's part of the big three in index fund management, along with State Street and Vanguard. It admonishes Mr. Fink to uh, stop trying to influence policy. Uh, any, Any agreements that the U.S. enters into are the job of the U.S. Senate and their votes not BlackRock. That is emphatically made to Mr. Fink, that point. And, yeah, this is part of the larger problem that we've been witnessing over the years in UK column and, and through other news outlets, 21st Century Wire, et cetera, uh, the ascendancy of private power over government. We see it with COVID. We see it here. And this, this at least would explain, in part, the energy spikes you're seeing in the UK and elsewhere, this kind of financial leverage that's behind all this, not to mention that they want to sell a lot of smart meters and make a huge profit, just like they want to sell a lot of vaccines and make a huge profit. Uh, It's part of this world engineering thing, but it's nice to see these 19 state attorneys general taking some definitive action. And what's interesting here is it's not UK columns saying that BlackRock is meddling in actual governance, actual policy setting. It's these attorneys general that are saying it. So this kind of vindicates what we've been saying for a long, long time about private power rivaling and then eclipsing government through Bilderberg, through the Trilateral Commission, through the Council on Foreign Relations, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think this is a very important development. A corollary of this that just came out in American Free Press that I wrote, I'll mention in passing, is that even the Financial Times, that Bilderberg-related paper out of the city of London, along with um a Mr. Coates, uh, John Coates, a Harvard professor, he wrote a paper called The Problem of Twelve back in 2018, no less four years ago. And he said that 12 emperors might come out of this financial juggernaut. And so besides State Street Vanguard and BlackRock, there are nine others that Mr. Coates named in the Financial Times, even though it basically flourishes in a economic system that creates extreme concentrations of wealth, that's what the Financial Times is all about. Even so, the Financial Times is even concerned that BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street and nine others are becoming the 12 financial emperors that will rule most of the finances of the world in due time. And so that's a corollary of this. And so extreme concentrations of financial power, controlling energy markets, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Uh, now, going back to Mark Carney for a second, alongside that quote that we just showed on screen, he of course said that uh, uh, you know any company, including financial companies, uh, which didn't get 100% on board with the net zero policy would be effectively bankrupted. Um, are you, do you think uh, the likes of BlackRock and so on are using their financial clout to, uh, to pursue that type of policy?
3: Yeah, all indications are if you're not in their arena of action, if you're not in the club, then you're kicked to the financial ghetto in terms of getting the finances you need, getting the leg up that you need to compete in in the world economy. And so yeah, there's a definite um discrimination there. And it's interesting briefly that you mentioned Mr. Carney, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero is involved in this. It was launched in April 2021 by the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance and that happens to be Mr. Carney, the former governor of the banks of England and, and Canada. And so he's directly involved in the, you might say, the solar system, the orbit of what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. And, uh, Ian, just very briefly, um, what are ESGs and, and also just remind us about GFANS, because that was something which uh, was set up uh, at COP26.
2: Yeah, it was announced at, it was announced at COP26. It, um, uh, and also, something else that was important that was announced at COP26 that didn't get as much coverage was the International Sustainability Standards Board, which was announced by uh, um, Erky and I think the guy's name. Um, and basically, this uses ESG. So ESGs are a rating system. I think it stands for Environmental Sustainable and Governance. I'm not quite sure. Um, but it's a rating system for all assets. And the International Sustainability Standards Board, again, centralizes control of that rating system. So any investor that is looking to invest into a new project, say a new oil platform or something like that, that project will be given an ESG rating. And ESG ratings are backed by the global political class. So, the they are considered to be a safe rating. So if something gets a a high ESG rating, it'll attract investment and a low ESG rating, it won't get investment. So when Carney said, get on board or your business will go bankrupt, that is what he was referring to because they control centrally, I had something I've talked about the global public private partnership, they control the ESG rating and if they control that they can they can make or break a business yes
0: uh, and then mark finally then uh in your article you were talking about the uh uh the involvement of city mayors and so on in this kind of th- just uh, this is something we've been talking about for quite some time just give us a brief update on that
3: yeah there the naturally the the mayors in especially the ones that define themselves as global cities they want to take the lead on it. They don't want to wait for national governments to to take action to conform whatever they can control to the ESGs that Ian very well described. So yeah, that, that's going to be something that the global cities will want to use as criteria to even be a global city and remain one. It'll be a defining thing.
0: Yeah, okay, thank you.
3: Thank you, Mark. Uh, Patrick. So, sorry, Were you are you muted, Pat?
1: Pardon me. Pardon me. I just want to add on ESGs. Twenty twenty two. If you look at the first quarter, um, the amount of uh, ESGs uh, in the first quarter is eighty seven billion of new money went into ESG funds. In the second quarter, a massive decline: thirty two billion. So that's a sixty two, roughly a sixty two percent decline. There's a lot of pushback. If you're reading the Wall Street Journal and you're looking at financial papers right now, there's a lot of people that are going cold uh, on e- ESGs. There's a lot of complaints. So now it's becoming a political uh, battle. So it's it, it seems like uh, the business and industry community do not really believe that ESGs make um, any economic sense uh, in the long term because the, it looks like the, there's a decline in investment. So then it's now becoming, it's going to become uh, a, a political battle of brute force. Um, and so it's going to be the Mark Carney's of the world, uh, the people at Davos, uh, with their agenda, selling this agenda, and then you're going to have the real world and the real economy. And like Mark says, you know, you've got the uh, horsemen of the apocalypse, BlackRock, um, et cetera. Certainly they're going to flex this muscle, but a lot of people are complaining. This looks like a way to keep people out of markets. Um, and it has nothing to do with, uh, anything like inclusion or any real principles. So it could be a monopolist uh, tool at the end of the day. A lot of people are suspecting this.
0: Yes. Okay. And uh, then Patrick, sticking with the inflation thing, uh, the, COVID, uh, the COVID-19 gravy train, uh, if we can put this on screen, uh, is uh, well an inflation driver?
1: Yeah. The COVID-19 gravy train uh, set off uh, in, in, in the spring of 2020. And it's still steaming along, believe it or not, uh, in 2022, uh, but we're feeling the effects of it. And it is one of the big inflation drivers, uh, not just the quantitative easing and the massive money printing, but there's also a lot of knock-on effects. This is a really uh, interesting story that uh, out of the Washington Post here. Once in a while, there's something vaguely interesting in the Washington Post. This is one of those stories. Uh, so there was a, one of the many boondoggle projects um, that were that was drifted out during COVID was this this idea that they could train military veterans. Uh, so they allocated about four hundred million dollars to train people for various jobs, you know, white collar jobs like graphic design and things like that. It's one of these classic central government uh, programs that just you know it looks good on paper, but th- wasn't going to really work uh, in real life. As of August first of this year, only. Uh, so there were 6,800 6, veterans had enrolled in this $400 million program, uh, and it seems to have uh, only 400 people uh, have landed new jobs uh, as a result of this, arguably or allegedly as a result of this. We're not sure if that's why they landed the new jobs, but let's just say 400. Um, so as for, they anticipated 17,000-plus people would enroll in this. So what's the cost per job on that? 400 jobs landed, $400 million uh, in public money. Um, that's, about a million, that's about a million dollars per job. And we're not talking about you know, massively paid jobs. These are just sort of really average entry level uh, positions in most cases. Um, so this, this is a classic COVID relief program. And this just scratches the surface, not to say anything about all the massive fraud that's now being uncovered uh, for businesses that basically took advantage of the COVID gravy train. And uh, we're we're still riding that train. And the worst part about it is it's a major driver of inflation. And it will continue to drive inflation. Uh, and all the, the, that money is still circulating uh, in these various programs. And it's completely skewed uh, sections of the economy. So there's, no, there's nothing good that is going to come out of it or that has come out of it. It was a mistake from the beginning. Uh, All all the policies that we've railed against over the years—lockdowns, paying people to stay at home, paying businesses to shutter—all of that was—it didn't save any lives. It did no good for society, and it absolutely tanked uh, our our economies, especially in the uh, advanced, so-called advanced Western uh, nations.
0: Uh, Yes. A whole economy transition, no less. Uh, okay, thank you for that Patrick. Let's uh, let's move on then. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options for you to help us out there. that would be very much appreciated or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, uh, but in the, in the meantime, do share any material that you find on their various platforms. Uh, brand new tube you will notice is still not uh, back on this graphic yet. Um, we'll be talking a bit more uh, about brand YouTube on Extra later on. So stick around for that. And then, final little advertisement here. Uh, this is a tweet that went out uh, uh, seven, well, nine hours ago now. Uh, you too can help some soldier whose war you do not understand to maim or kill a child in Donetsk, says the tweet. Uh, Send what dollars, pounds, or euros you have left now, sponsored by Reuters. And this uh, is highlighting a Reuters article that was published uh, just uh, a few hours ago. Uh, and the Reuters tweet said, a crowdfunding website is raising money for Ukrainian army by selling revenge messages to be written on shells before they're fired. Uh, and I'm glad to say that somebody responded to this by saying, uh, is this Reuters just catching up with UK Column who reported on this days ago? So I've got to say, Vanessa, uh, welcome to the program and well done, because, of course, that was your report. I believe that was uh, last Friday.
4: Yeah, and actually um, a number of mainstream media have picked up the story since then. Not only, well, it, it obviously fed by Reuters, um, but it was quite, obviously it skewed towards being perfectly acceptable um, that there is industrial scale crowdfunding for Nazi uh, recriminations against Russian-speaking citizens in Ukraine.
0: <laughs> yes, okay, well, look. Uh We're not going to talk about this uh, Ukraine Mm. today with you today. It's all about uh, (laughs) sex education for children, well, sex education. Um, So, well, take it away.
4: Okay, well, um, a few days ago, um, I picked up on this document from the WHO Collaborating Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health in collaboration with the BZGA. I'll come on to what that is in a second. But reading through the um, front page of the website, the Framework Standards for Sexuality Education in Europe, in brackets standards, presents the concept for, bear this in mind, holistic sexuality education. So bringing in a kind of, you know, a a sort of a beatnik term, apologies to people that follow holistic um, lifestyles, but bringing this into this, concept when you look at what they are proposing as education is horrifying uh, and includes information on the themes relevant for children and adolescents in the various age groups. So if we then look at what BZGA is, they are the Federal Center for Health Education in Germany uh, combined with the United Nations Population Fund. Uh, and the World Health Organization jointly developed a series of policy briefs on sexuality education. I urge everyone to go and look at the numerous policy briefs on sexuality education. That alone is pretty shocking. Um, The policy briefs are targeted politicians, politicians, not to our education uh, institutions and other decision makers, primarily in Europe and Central Asia, and provide them with short and comprehensible information on different issues regarding sexuality education. Being an advocacy tool, the, policies, the policy briefs promote good quality sexuality education as an effective life course intervention. So, intervening in the education of children. From a political perspective, is how I understand that, which supports children and young people in protecting their sexual health and general well being. So let's have a look at um, this document uh, produced by the BZGA and WHO. Um, What I'll do, Mike, is go to the next slide, which zooms in. Now, bear in mind, this is what well, is before you—sorry—before you do that,
0: Vanessa, we just need to make the point. Just sorry, Stephanie, just put that back yeah. on the screen. We need to make the point, to draw people's attention to the heading. This is for ages yeah, zero was, to four, right?
4: Yeah, I was about to say that. Sorry, yes, but I wanted—I <laughs> just wanted to show
0: that on, on yeah. screen while you did. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so yeah, bear in mind this is this is. I, I guess I'm I don't have children, but I'm guessing this is kindergarten um, age not to, to 4 years old so imagine i mean these these are babies effectively so let's look at the recommendations for uh, sexuality education and this is in the who standards recommendations enjoyment and pleasure when touching one's own body is it not to four early childhood masturbation in a 0 to 4 year old child Discovery of own body and own genitals. The fact that enjoyment of physical closeness is a normal part of everyone's life. Now, this is, this is for children up to four years old, but it continues from the ages of four to six, and six to nine, etc. The fact that enjoyment of physical closeness is a normal part of everyone's life, but it doesn't determine what that physical closeness is tenderness and physical closeness as an expression of love and affection, to gain an awareness of gender identity at under four years old. Talk about unpleasurable feelings in one's own body under four years old. Express own needs, wishes, and boundaries, for example, in the context of playing doctor. Well, I'm not quite sure what kind of playing doctor that would include, that you have to express your wishes and boundaries. Positive attitude towards one's body with its functions, positive body image at under four years old. Respect for others, curiosity regarding own and others' bodies at under four years old. Different types, so emotions, different types of love. Um, I'll run through them because I know I'm up against time. Um, but let's look at the last column. The understanding that emotions are expressed in many different ways. Okay, positive feelings towards their own sex and gender. It is good to be a girl or a boy. The attitude that their own experience and expression of emotions is right. Um, And then that continues to, under four years old, sexuality and right. The right to be safe and protected. The responsibility of adults for the safety of children. Now, what I want to draw attention to here is the terminology adults, not of parents. What this document does is completely erode and erase parental responsibility for their own children. It disconnects the children from the parent. This is, I think, only one of two mentions of adults, not of family. The right to ask questions about sexuality, the right to explore nakedness and the body, be curious. Now, this is when it gets bizarre. So sexuality and rights for under four-year-olds say yes and no. Yes and no to what? develop communication skills, express needs and wishes, differentiate between good and bad secrets at under four years old. I keep saying this because I, I find this document and, and the recommendations just so shocking. This is equivalent to grooming for pedophilia gangs, in my opinion. I can't state that strongly enough. An awareness of their rights which leads to self-confidence. And this, this is extraordinary, it mentions many times my body belongs to me. So in this document for children, they are advocating bodily autonomy, having destroyed it in, in the general public for the, for the working class and for the populations of global countries um, regarding vaccine mandates. But suddenly with children and in sexual sexuality education, their body belongs to them. What does this do? Again, This means the child is being targeted to make their own decisions outside parental guidance. That's how I read that. I'd be happy to hear from other people. Um, The feeling that they can make their own decisions. Social and cultural determinants um, of sexuality, values, norms. Uh, Again, let's look at the end column. Um, Respect for no or yes. Again, I ask what are they supposed to be respecting no or yes in, in context with as a four-year-old. Um, knowing where you can touch, middle column. Differentiate between private and public behavior. Again, this is potential for, for enabling um, behind closed doors, pedophilia and child abuse. Respect social, cult- social rules and cultural norms, Behave appropriately according to context. It brings in Context, it brings in um, caveats. Uh, And then if we go on, um, we come to four to six. Now, again, um, I won't dwell on too much, but even four to six, talk about sexual matters, communication skills, consolidate their gender identity at four to six, use sexual language in a non offensive way. I don't have children, but I was a child. Between four and six, I have no recollection of using sexual language in any way, shape, or form. Um, Let's look at first column, sexual feelings, closeness, enjoyment, excitement as a part of all human feelings at this age. What happened to, to the innocence of children? Enjoyment and pleasure when touching one's own body, early childhood masturbation, discovery of one's own body and genitals. And the next slide. (coughs) Again, sexuality, health, and well-being. Now, I've circled here. If the experience feeling (coughs) is not good, you do not always have to comply. What is this language? You do not always have to comply if the experience or the feeling is not good. So uh, on what conditions do you have to comply? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, the attitude my body belongs to me Mike could you just continue for me for one second
0: yeah so so (laughs) the attitude my body belongs to me again and uh, the awareness of their rights is the other one that you've circled
4: yeah sorry and the responsibility of adults for the safety of children so again the reference only to adults and not parents yeah,
0: and so then then there's another document you want to highlight here, and this is coming from the United Nations itself, uh, and it's entitled "International Technical Guidance on Sexuality Education." It's interesting. I didn't really appreciate this when you sent the the, uh, the graphics over to me earlier. That it's the, the word that's being used there
3: is sexuality. Ah, uh, you're muted.
4: Um yeah, so you have a mirroring of the language in the WHO document, but not very surprising when you see who is producing this document. Um UNAIDS, UN UNICEF, UN Women, the World Health Organization, and of course Education twenty thirty, so it comes under sustainable development goals. Um <coughs> Uh, again, I recommend everyone uh, goes and reads this document. The link, I presume, will be put in the show notes. But I wanted to highlight just a couple, or, or one part, of the document. Again, a, a bizarre wording: sexuality is linked to power. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to be teaching teenagers and and younger. The ultimate boundary of power is the possibility of controlling one's own body. So, again, we come back to bodily autonomy when it comes down to sexuality, education, divorcing from parental consent. CSE can address the relationship between sexuality, gender, and power and its political and social dimensions. This is particularly appropriate for older learners. I mean, I I just find the language in these documents extremely, extremely disturbing. Uh, Okay, So so look, uh,
0: what I'll do, Vanessa, is I'll just run through this next little section and then I'll ask you to comment on the bit at the end, because uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday or the day before we received uh, an email here, uh, which said, uh, Dear Brian and UK Column, I was recently watching one of your UK Column uh, releases where you were discussing the sex and relationships education fiasco and how it's been imposed on all UK school children. I work in a secondary school. Uh, and this has been a sm- no small vexation to me and so on. People can read the rest of it uh, in a second, but uh, they sent me or they sent us uh, some slides to go with it. And sort of this gives an indication of how this stuff is being implemented uh, in uh, schools in the UK. Uh, and so the graphics here, uh, this is fr- from uh, the 9th of August, 2022. I mean, the, <laughs> the language involved sexting, nudes and dick pics. Uh, we've got. Is there any good reason to send nudes, sex, sexts, and so on? Uh, and uh, then, what do the letters LGBTQIA+ stand for, uh, and so on? So, uh, Vanessa, just briefly, what are your thoughts on on how this is being implemented at the school level?
4: Well, I mean, this is extraordinary. And if you notice, um, after there are there any good reasons to send nude, sex, and dick pics? and um, the, the UK column viewer who sent the email objected very strongly to the use of this language. He said although children use this language to, be, to, to see it in, a, in an educational presentation is horrifying for him. Um, and then at the, at the end they, they asked the students to come up with their own sexting story using these images as stimulus. I mean, you know, <laughs> It, I, I just find what is going on is reminiscent of me, this divorcing from parental responsibility. It's something that we did see, although from a different perspective, back in Nazi Germany, of course, when children were effectively um, corralled away from their parents and brought into Hitler Youth. Other organizations were completely written out of the criteria, like the Scouts, etc. And this became a centralized education process For German youth. And we're seeing a very familiar uh, process here again now. And I need to also say what we're seeing is the normalization of pedophilia. And I'll come on to the next slide in a second. But so we've now had the normalization of terrorism, the normalization um, of Nazism in Ukraine, the normalization of global health tyranny, the, the normalization of inflation, as you were talking about. (laughs) and now the normalization of (coughs) paedophilia, who are now starting to be described, or in the last three years, are now being described as minor, attractive people. And this was just one website that I found after a very brief and cursory look. (laughs) Paedophiles talking about paedophilia. What is a paedophile? Well, guess what? Oh, God. Sorry, Mike. Can you take over? Go
0: yeah. Ahead. Okay. So what is a paedophile? It says, well, guess what? Uh, that means people attracted to children, nothing more. Uh, we're brought up by society believing that it means someone who abuses children, but that isn't what it is, according to this website. A paedophile is simply someone who, with an attraction. That can be good, bad, or anything in between. They can make good choices or bad choices or both. Sure, they can abuse children uh, as kids, sorry, but most don't. A paedophile is just a term for people attracted to prepubescent children. Uh, okay, and so it goes on, so why map it says, minor attracted people is a term coined by researchers and minor attracted people themselves, uh, and it is a term that simply umbrellas all people attracted to children, prepubescent, prepubescent and postpubescent, uh, in a way that is not normative to their age bracket. Uh, this could be a 40 year old attracted to someone who is 16 or someone who is 13 years old attracted to someone who is five. It includes a wide group of people, says this website. Uh, This is intentional, since minor attracted people are not a monolith.
4: Yeah, And then they go on to produce a sort of um, Venn diagram, I guess, of uh, the differences between minor attracted people and non-minor attracted people and non-paedophiles, people who are not attracted to children primarily or otherwise. I mean, this for me is, is a terrifying step towards the destigmatization of paedophilia. And the final slide demonstrates minor attractive person inside the growing effort to destigmatize paedophilia. I mean, we, through the education system, what I really, how I interpret this, and I'm happy for other people to comment, is that it's literally a grooming program for paedophile rings.
0: Yes. Okay. Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Uh, I appreciate uh, the difficulty there. No, it's no problem. Uh, Okay. uh, Let's move on, Patrick, then to the next topic, uh, which is uh, COVID. Uh, And here we have, uh, well, what's going on here? Uh, Big tech COVID collusion.
1: Yes. Yes. So this is a, this is, there's a court case uh, going, uh, in the United States, I think it's quite important. Uh, A number of the members of the Great Barrington Declaration, people who signed on to that, if you remember, um, they're suing the government uh, in the United States uh, for collusion uh, with big tech uh, to censor uh, individuals on social media platforms um, like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Let's take a look at uh, what the lawsuit's findings have been thus far. Uh, and also i might note i have spoken to somebody who is involved in this lawsuit and uh, hopefully i have more information about that uh, next week the cdc is actively feeding disapproved viewpoints to twitter facebook including a list of tweets that the cdc regarded as misinformation so this this will become more relevant in a second but you know a lot of us who were uh, erased uh, from these platforms, including myself, uh, for violations of, you know, whatever the terms and conditions or community standards of uh, Twitter were uh, or could be interpreted as. It's really under this banner. So who knows uh, what the what the real story was? In one email, Twitter senior manager for public policy, his name's Todd O'Boyle, asked uh, Crawford, who's a plaintiff in this suit, I think from the CDC. Uh, to help identify tweets to be censored and emphasize that the company was looking forward to setting up regular chats. So this is uh, clear coordination here. This is obviously (laughs) the tip of the iceberg uh, on this. And so Jonathan Turley, who's a a, a legal expert uh, in the United States, this is what he said on his blog uh, regarding this case. This is also quoted in the previous article I showed. Facebook also received lists of, quote, offensive posts to be dealt with. Facebook trained government officials in using its CrowdTangle software system used uh, by health departments to flag potential vaccine misinformation to allow the company, Facebook in this case, to review and possibly remove the posts or the or the content. So it added that uh, this is similar to how governments and fact checkers use Crowd CrowdTangle ahead of elections. What CrowdTangle is, is basically hoovers up data on social media, and then uh, it's used to generate heat maps and things like this to try to identify the sources of misinformation. If you remember, uh, Kate Starbird from the University of Washington uh, that ran that hit piece on me uh, and used this as the sort of central uh, focus of her research uh, to track the Source of the white helmets, misinformation, and all this. this. This is very similar to uh this uh enterprise software uh package, uh tangle. So this is also used to censor and suppress information, it looks like anyway, uh, in the run-up to elections. Certainly we saw that happening in the 2020 presidential election in the United States. There's no no debate that, that uh that, that actually happened. Uh so this is interesting. So here's the big question, and we'll go to the next uh, image here. Jack Dorsey testified before Congress in 2021, and they asked him point blank, "Do you censor?" And uh, he says, "Of his company, Twitter, we don't have a censoring department." He his excuse was that censorship was tricky. Okay, so it looks like Jack Dorsey lied to Congress. Jack Dorsey, CEO, then CEO of Twitter. Notice how he jumped ship from Twitter just a couple of months ago, said he wanted to spend more time on other uh, projects, blue sky projects. Um, why did he jump ship from his, uh, his major uh, baby, you know, the company that he uh, apparently or supposedly helped build up to, uh, to this giant uh, monopoly? So Jack jumped ship from Twitter. We find out that it's likely here Jack lied to Congress. So they're running a censorship farm at Twitter. They're in collusion with the CDC. Put this into perspective here, uh, with, especially with the Biden administration. Okay, This has now come out. So this is all in discovery. So Joe Biden, 2021, look at this. Remember, Joe Biden says social media platforms are killing people by allowing misinformation about COVID or vaccines to be allowed on their platform. This, I mean, we dismissed this at the time as being totally ridiculous, totally beyond the pale, just completely outrageous that the president of the United States would accuse people of murder uh, because they posted allegedly disinformation, misinformation. So th- th- it's quite an extraordinary thing, uh, what we're witnessing here. And you, you also have to put this into context uh, with a story that hopefully I'll be able to, to run through quickly. Soon, which is that the CDC has reversed all of its guidelines. So, so all of the thing that all the things that we got kicked off, or censored, or had posts removed, or got uh, suspensions for, all of the claims about vaccines not being effective, vaccines not being safe, or at least not being effective, um, or uh, you know, various COVID measures not working, that got us censored or suspended from social media. The CDC's now walked all that back officially in policy. Now, it's the same CDC that was in collusion with Twitter, with Facebook. So the US federal government, or governments in general, are locked in behind the scenes with uh, social media firms.
0: So, and so they're also
1: of dashboards. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
0: so, so let's look at that. Let's put this article uh, on screen. Then CDC backtracks on COVID guidance as damning studies. This is from Mercola, and it says the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reversed its COVID-19 gu- guidelines, thereby vindicating every so-called misinformation spreader. Uh, so continue, Patrick.
1: Yeah, so that's, that's the starting point there. Now, CDC is advocating now for taking personal responsibility. For everyone to decide for themselves which preventions they they should use at any time, based on their own judgment, based on their own risk or risk of severe illness, or in in proximity with other members of your household that are sick. All 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 these things are common sense. Mike, this was what received wisdom was before a March twenty twenty. Right, everyone remember that. That's now what the CDC is reverting back to pre twenty twenty logic and customs of modern society. Uh, So, and they go on to see he's also uh, giving up on the discrimination-based COVID jab status, stating now, believe it or not, quote, COVID-19 prevention recommendations no longer differentiate between a person's vaccination status because breakthrough infections occur, et cetera. Uh, They also admit natural immunity actually exists. Natural immunity actually works. So, this is all big revelations here uh, for the CDC. So, but here's the big takeaway. Now listen to this. So testing is now reserved for those who are symptomatic and have known or suspected exposure to someone with COVID-19. That's an incredible uh, point there. And secondly, isolation for only those who are symptomatic and have tested positive. Both of those things, symptomatic and tested positive. And contact tracing is now restricted to healthcare settings and high-risk congregate settings, et cetera. And here, the the last policy, Walk Back, the CDC's about-face appears to be politically motivated in the run-up to the midterm election. So Biden is trying to get a win here. This is an admission by federal government, by this administration, that these are hugely unpopular policies. And really, it's an implicit, uh, it's an implicit uh, admission that they don't work, that they didn't work, that these policies would never work. Okay? So... But Mercola, lastly, warns here that the post-election, you're going to see the biggest gaslighting exercise uh, after the midterms in terms of a push for vaccinations uh, in the winter. So uh, some restrictions may be brought back in. I wouldn't be surprised. Depends how much the media is going to hype up case numbers for COVID or whatever the next uh, flu or whatever scare is. But look at this. So And this begs the question, uh, for instance, Novak Djokovic, he, he's not playing in the U.S. Open at Flushing Meadows, uh, in, in and that's all based on CDC guidelines. He's not vaccinated, not allowed uh, to play, not allowed to enter the United States as a foreigner. Americans can come in unvaccinated, but not foreigners. So why don't they just roll that back? Because the CDC's rolled it all back. Does not make sense? There's no consistency in the policies, but it shows you the government is basically collapsing. Uh, on trying to hold this whole narrative up,
0: yeah, well, so so my question is then Patrick, uh, the implicate you've you've implied this already, but do, do you think that uh, you know this is something which is just uh, as fluid as it needs to be in order to suit the political uh, temperature of the day. So because uh, Biden's aiming for a win, they've they've made these statements, reverse this, but they can easily go back the other way, come Christmas time or January, February time?
1: Yeah, yeah. the 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 template is in in place. The policies are there, dormant. All the mechanisms for all of these regulations and restrictions and border closures and testing requirements, all of that infrastructure is still in place. And the the, the key though is a lot of it is elective. The corporations are the ones who are opting to carry on uh, doing it. And what was amazing is just on a straw poll, Mike, um, I saw quite a few people wearing masks. As soon as I uh, arrived at JFK Airport, I was kind of shocked I say I would say about you know one out of ten, about ten percent still wearing masks, even though there's no mask restrictions uh, in public transport areas like airports etc a lot of people are electing to still wear the mask so it's become a bit of a political statement or maybe they genuinely are scared or is that ten percent uh, of the population is paranoid um, that's a hypochondriac or whatever or a combination of all of the above, but it could easily be ramped up again, and certainly in Europe, that that would be the case too. So I, I wouldn't say we're out of the woods yet.
2: Yeah,
0: indeed. Okay, thanks, Pat. Uh, uh, Ian.
2: Yeah, very much echoing what Pat just said about it just being something that they can switch on and switch back off again. The point is that none of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that they introduced for COVID nineteen had any epidemiological basis. They never had any epidemiological basis. As late as 2019, the World Health Organization put out a document about non-pharmaceutical interventions in relation to an influenza influenza pandemic and and absolutely ruled out things like lockdown and uh, the use of face masks and social distancing, and primarily because of the the well-understood fact that these things would create more problems than they resolved. They only recommended the WHO, only recommended those kind of measures in the most extreme circumstances. So there was never any justification, not from a scientific basis. And going on to what Pat was saying about people being canceled, one of the people that stands out for me is Professor Nutt Witowski, who was one of the leading Ep- genuinely, one of the world's leading epidemiologists, the guy who coined the term the R number, he was cancelled off social media for questioning exactly what CDC are rolling back on now. So it's just a switch. It's just a switch that they can switch on and switch off. And it has no basis in science. Yeah, indeed. Well,
0: uh, no, Ian, uh, you recently published a couple of, of articles on the UK Column website. Uh, with respect to conspiracy theories, and this was, of course, uh, really triggered by the uh, the BBC's little mini documentary on the psychology behind conspiracy theories.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the the, uh, the BBC ran out not uh, a documentary called uh, "Psychology Behind Conspiracy Theory," and the, the "Psychology Behind Conspiracy Theory," which is the first article that um, I'm shown there. Um, is, is, again, it is full of assumptions and woolly conclusions based upon data that, you know, is, is unsubstantiated. I mean, one of the criticisms, a lot of it is based on experimental psychology. And one of the criticisms of experimental psychology is that the results can't be repeated more often than not. So it's not good science generally. That doesn't mean that it does has to be bad science, but generally it isn't. Generally, it is poor. Um, and that also sort of led on to uh, me to talk in the second article, uh, why was conspiracy theory myth created? Um, is very much based upon something that UNESCO um, have put out. Um, now, UNESCO's um constitution is it, it's in their constitutional document, which is, which is when they were formed in, um, in the 1944-45, that it is key to, for the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, that they emphasize the importance that they believe in full and equal opportunities for education, for all the unrestricted pursuit of objective truth and the free exchange of ideas and knowledge so, so, this is in their found. This is their foundation in their foundational document. But recently, um, if we move on, Mike, UNESCO have put something out called "Think Before Sharing." It's a campaign which they say is to take the idea of it is to take down conspiracy theory. They're, they they say that what they call conspiracy theory needs to stop. That's their language needs to stop. So the reason for that, one of the, the UNESCO Director General Audrey Azalee, she announced that that one of the problems of of um, conspiracy theory is that it reinforces stereotypes, which can fuel violence and violent extremist ideology. So this is they're trying to make this link between what they call conspiracy theory and where discuss what that's about um, and and violence and extremism and this is a theme that has been going on for years as they try to link all these all these things together. Now again going back to, to Pat's previous segment they formed this what I what we can perhaps call the Thinks Before Sharing Alliance which comprises of UNESCO, the European Commission, Twitter and the World Jewish Council so they are actively involved in policing information and certainly twitter are very much involved and i would also point out that this alliance was formed in 2020 so it was uh, it was formed at the beginning of the covid-19 s- 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 said pandemic so if we move on to the next one what what they're talking about mike is that they're saying that if we think about what they're defining as a conspiracy. So this goes back to the experimental psychology and there are some formative papers and one of the most formative is Understanding Conspiracies by Douglas et al. Now they define conspiracy theory in that as attempts to explain the ultimate causes of significant social and political events and circumstances with claims of secret plots by two or more powerful actors. Well, obviously, if you're claiming something is a secret, it can't be known. It's either a secret or it isn't. If it's secret, you can never know what it is because it's secret. So, sure, information can be hidden, obfuscated, obscured, um, denied, but it, if it can't be known, if it's secret, <clears throat> but what these what this what these papers always also add is that conspiracies themselves are proven, they're real. So this is again is a quote from that paper. Conspiracies such as Watergate scandal do happen, but because of the difficulties inherent in executing such plan and keeping people quiet, they tend to fail. When conspiracies fail or are otherwise exposed, the appropriate expert deem them as having actually occurred. So if you and I talk about the evidence about a cons- what we suspect might be a conspiracy, it's meaningless because it's a secret. It only becomes meaningful when the appropriate experts deem that to be the case. That is the working definition of conspiracy theory that is that runs through UNESCO's campaign and. The, the, the science or this alleged science that supposedly defines it. So there are three, three scientists that the, the UNESCO the, this alliance this um, used to inform their work and that was a, and they produced some documents which again shows how this theme runs through everything that underpins so-called conspiracy theory work so if we look to guide to conspiracy theory by michael butter who's one of the contributors he again says defines a conspiracy theory as a belief that events are secretly manipulated behind the scenes by powerful forces and again we see in in the work of uh, lewandowski and cook that conspiracy in that what they wrote the conspiracy theory handbook that again this acknowledgement that real conspiracies do exist the US national security agency recently spied on civilian internet users we know about these conspiracies through internal industry documents government investigations or whistleblowers so so again this idea that a conspiracy only exists if it is officially acknowledged so if we move on we can see that what the real definition of not the definition that they are suggesting that conspiracy theories are supposedly meant to be, the real definition of conspiracies are that they are only identifiable when they are officially acknowledged or approved by government spokespersons. This is me, that my, my summation of it. Recognized by the appropriate expert, experts or revealed by the mainstream media. Until then, regardless of how much evidence there is exposing a conspiracy, it remains a secret and is therefore incomprehensible, while it is categorized as a secret, any evidence exposing the conspiracy must be ignored because none of it can possibly exist until the conspiracy is officially approved by public debate, for public debate. So, and we can see the what the effect of that is if we look at what UNESCO are putting out as a way to identify a conspiracy theory. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge what a fact is supposed to be. So if we look at the, the definition of a fact, a fact is a thing that is known or proved to be true. And how do we prove something is true? We have to look at the evidence. So something is a fact when we consider the evidence or argument establishing the fact or truth of a statement. So the evidence is key. We have to look at the evidence. So in So UNESCO are suggesting that in order to to identify this this dangerous concept called a conspiracy theory, one of the ways you can identify it, if we look at point three, is that the evidence seems to support the conspiracy theory. So what they are trying to do is disassociate facts from evidence. You know, obviously, if there is evidence which suggests that conspiracy theory may be true, then we can ascertain that by looking at the evidence, because that is the only way that you can figure out what a fact is. But they're not suggesting that. UNESCO are suggesting instead that a fact is devised devised by gatekeepers, by the people that the the approved experts, the the fact checking organisations and the mainstream media define facts, not the evidence. Right. So So, so
0: look, Ian, we're 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 rapidly running out of time here. What I wanted to ask you was then uh, isn't the case that uh, I'd be interested to to know what you think the online safety uh, bill, for example, does to this. Does this put uh, this this whole notion on some kind of legislative footing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, the, the, the idea is that if you can, I mean, it's a very similar concept, isn't it? The idea that there is a thing that is not necessarily illegal, but is harmful to adults. So you define what is what the subject is that is deemed to be harmful, or in this case, the government defines it through secondary legislation, which then will be picked up by Ofcom, who will then provide the regulations to the social media companies, who will then use the fact checkers and their, the, the industry that Pat was just talking about to police that information. So, yes. but, but, but more to the point, they are trying to associate it with extremism and they're trying to associate it with violence. So they're saying that if this information, this information can be deemed harmful, for example, questioning vaccines, because it leads to extremism and violence. And that's and that's how they're going to, I would suggest how they're going to allegedly tackle this problem.
0: Yeah. Okay. Look, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Look, but just before we finish, I just wanted to mention this and get comments from you all on it. Actually, uh, this is from The Grey Zone and it's talking about Roger Waters, of course, formerly Pink Floyd uh, added to the Ukrainian government sponsored hit list. Uh, And this is by uh, Deborah Armstrong, and she's saying uh, Russian political analyst uh, Daria Dugina, who was killed in a car bomb explosion in Moscow on Saturday, now appears as, quote, liquidated on this Ukrainian online hit list. Uh, This is a website which is known as uh, uh, Meritveretz uh, or Peacekeeper in English. Uh, And uh, so she's saying that a database which lists thousands of journalists, activists and anyone else who's declared an enemy of Ukraine, Uh, But here's the key thing. This site was created uh, with the tacit approval of the Minister for International Affairs of Ukraine. And so uh, and she makes the point that Roger Waters was critical of the Ukraine war on CNN recently, uh, referring to Joe Biden as a war criminal uh, and as fueling the fire in Ukraine. uh, And uh, that he had said that this war is basically about uh, the action and reaction of NATO pushing right up to the Russian border. Uh, which they promised they wouldn't do when Gorbachev uh, negotiated the withdrawal of the USSR from the whole of Eastern Europe. Um, so, uh, Patrick, maybe i come to you first. Uh, it's bad enough that we have the situation that uh, uh, you know critics of the war in Ukraine uh, on the Russian side are being added to these types of hit lists and that Russians are being assassinated as a result. Uh, but now we're having Westerners, politicians that are outspoken, uh, people in the public eye, uh, including uh, you know, aging pop star or rock stars, uh, being put on a, a hit list with the tacit approval of the Ukrainian government, and Western governments offer no criticism of this.
1: No, and uh, also independent journalists. There's quite a few Ukrainian journalists, of course, Russian journalists. Uh, I believe Eva Bartlett, who we all know, uh, she's Canadian, uh, American, Canadianist she's she's on the uh the, this notorious hit list so uh it, it all this takes on an additional weight uh with the uh brutal and violent uh targeting assassination of Daria Dugina, uh Alexander Dugin's daughter recently so um you know, it, it are it, are the two directly connected we'll see uh if if the evidence uh bears that out in the future but just the fact that it exists the fact that it's not being Uh, condemned by all the major gatekeepers of good and justice and the rules-based international order, like The Guardian uh, or the uh, wonderful journalists at The Times uh, or The Washington Post, New York Times, any of the the BBC, uh, whereas the uh, uh, Mariana Spring needs to get on this and, and condemn it. She needs to disavow it. And so let's play the same game they play with us. If you don't disavow this, then you support it. So disavow it, all the mainstream journalists, all politicians in, in Britain, in the US, disavow this this death list being put out by the Ukrainian uh, radicals. Um, otherwise, you support it. Your silence is is violence, as the, as they say in social justice language. So let's just drift that out there. Thank
0: you yeah. very much. Okay, thanks, Patrick. And and Vanessa, since, since you are uh, often on the receiving end of this type of vitriol, I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on it?
4: Well, two things. First of all, yes, um, Eva Bartlett is on the list and has been actually for a number of years now. And bear in mind, if we're talking about Twitter, that she was effectively doxed by Louise Mensch, former Tory uh, MP and chicklet author, etc., conspiracy theorist for their side. Um, two days before... Uh, She she was doxed in the sense that Louise Munch called out or alerted uh, the special forces, the NATO um, reaction forces, trained special forces in Ukraine to her presence in Donetsk. And two days later, uh, an attack was carried out on the hotel housing, uh, the majority of foreign journalists there. So we can't rule that out as being deliberate. Um but there's also Molfar Global, uh, established in the U.K. by Ukrainian um, cyber warfare geniuses, uh, that also have what they call as an orc book, orcs, of course, being the derogatory term um, for Russian speakers, civilians and military. Uh, and that hit list is basically uh, identifying them for assassination. so these kill lists. Are, are spreading and expanding um, and, and so is the whole misinformation culture there was a recent US State Department funded um, meeting in Ukraine again talking about misinformation controlling misinformation describing it as terrorism describing those that are deemed to be spreading misinformation as um, information terrorists and war criminals so you know this entire concept is is really expanding and becoming a very high-risk environment for independent journalism.
0: Yes, okay, thank you, Vanessa. And Patrick, let's just end the program then uh, very quickly and introduce this little video clip.
4: Yeah, this is a
1: trailer to a new film that's come out. It's a feature film. It's called My Son Hunter, uh, directed by uh, Robert Davi. He worked on Licence to Kill, Die Hard, The Goonies, uh, and this stars Lawrence Fox, of all people, as playing the uh, son of President Joe Biden. Uh, and so this is being put out. I don't know what the uh, release uh, in terms of distribution is going to be, um, but it's it's av- it's be available soon. I've just seen the trailer up. I assume it's going to be available on pay-per-view, probably, maybe even on Netflix. Uh, we'll see. I don't know if it's going to get a theatrical release, but it's a fairly big budget, fairly good production by the looks of it. There's a trailer that's just been released, so uh, it's uh it's very interesting. Let's let's watch it.
4: So I'll tell you what's going down. Do you know who I am? They told me you were VIP. All connected to the government.
1: What kind of a moron forgets to pick up his laptop at a repair shop? You're a Biden. Everything he built, life, I just ruined it all. I wanna know everything that's on that laptop that can ruin my erection. My friends, it's time to party!
0: I'm
2: an artist.
4: Tell me how I can help you.
1: I don't deserve help. Oh, I'm so sorry.
4: I've been through worse.
1: It's the smartest man I know. Gangstad. I just wish I could make some sense. To you. I'll never forget Cory Bob. He was a bad dude. No joke. Dad, we we're talking about suffering. I can't seem to find anything but positive stuff on the Bidens. Who's the point, Ben, for the foreign policy in the Obama you Joe Biden. So it looks like you need a billion dollars.
4: So the obvious next question is, where's
1: Hunter? I can remember getting paid some money. But I can't remember what for. Well, my dad says we never discuss my businesses, period. Or my cut.
4: What's happening in there? Joe's in on it. Quality's over! <sighs> you no. had everything, Hunter, and you threw it all away. You hope the laptop will take down everybody with you. Get out!
0: Okay, well, we get we get the point, Patrick. That uh, lo- is going to look very, very interesting. Okay, well, look, we we gotta leave it there. Uh, I want to thank uh, Patrick, Vanessa, uh, Ian, and Mark for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for uh, for a bit of extra and lots to talk about there as well. Uh, and uh, well, I hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll be back t- uh, for the main news program on Monday, one PM as usual, uh, and we'll see you then. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye.